Welcome to another Bite Side. I'm Seamus Byrne. I've always been Seamus Byrne, in fact, um, but it's always nice to catch up again with you all. We're here to talk about tech, games, digital culture, all those internet things and the lovely nerdy world that relates to them. And with me, as always, is Nick Healy. Nick, how are you? Uh, look, I'm, I'm Nick Healy this week. I can't vouch for next week. And this oh, week, okay. I look, you know, I don't know, maybe it's the news coming out of Victoria. Maybe it's what we're seeing out of the southern parts of Sydney at the moment. But this week has been four or five years already easily. It's just been one of those weeks. Yeah. And, you know, we've kind of got that whole feeling where... We just, everyone's just starting to relax. Many would say relax a little too much. <laughs> um, and now here we are with this kind of creeping feeling of, of cases popping up all around the place. I think the best description I heard was that idea that this is the first, this is the actual first wave because the first time around it was a lot of cases at the border, the odd one kind of slipping through, but it was all very controlled. Uh, but now we're seeing that kind of broader idea of community transmission starting to happen where there's a lot less understanding of exactly, you know, where each, I mean, they're, they're tracing it all, but it just feels like now it's kind of, you know, popping up in pubs and all the places that have started to reopen uh, and it's feeling really quite worrying. It is really quite worrying. And look, you know, in just a second, I do actually want to talk about COVID app again, but I, I just wanted to really quickly before we get started yeah. and sink into the meaty, meaty stuff. Can you remind me why SBS killed its gaming console apps? Because I've been trying to watch the brand new War of the Worlds, which looks amazing. Um, Gabriel Byrne, can't wait to watch it. I forgot that I can't watch because I nearly watch all of that stuff through PlayStation. PlayStation has a great little collated series of, of you know, log into all your apps. It's all there. Um, SBS doesn't have console apps anymore. I had not realized that they had gone <laughs> away. So I'm not sure when they even went away, but you're absolutely right that it feels weird given that, I mean, basically everything else has put in that effort to, you know, distribute to wherever you want to engage with your stuff. Like, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm absolutely wrong. And if anyone knows that I'm wrong, please let me know. Um, but I'm trying to find the apps. I'm having this weird situation where the mobile app will let me Coronacast. Uh, Coronacast? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> on well, the brain, on oh, the brain. Oh, yeah, sorry, because Coronacast being the ABC daily podcast about Corona. Um, yes, that's right. It will let me cast to the uh, Google display I've got in my kitchen, but not my smart TV. Yeah. So and look, I did look it up, and SBS On Demand, it says, what devices is it, what is it available on? It's got web browsers, mobile devices, Android TV, Apple TV, then Hisense, Samsung, LG, Panasonic, Sony, uh, the high, like HBB enabled, so basically Freeview right. certified TVs. And then the set-top boxes are Telstra TV, Fetch, and Foxtel. So, yeah, they no longer have consoles on that list. And look, you know, fair play to them. They're supporting a lot of platforms. It's just a weird one, I, and mainly it's me issue. I just I do nearly all of my watching through that PlayStation kind of uh, TV collection area. And look, I, yeah, I think the one that kind of strikes me, because, you know, I, I kind of get it from their side as well. You know, our public broadcasters, resources are stretched. Having a tech team needing to maintain apps across sort of all these different devices must be pretty tricky. Um, but it does feel, you know, that for any one user, 
the device you have under your TV is the device you want to be able to use. Yeah. You know? And and I think casting, because I know that's always been a big thing from Foxtel's perspective as well, is that, you know, they always sort of say, well, you know, we don't have an Apple TV app, but you can, you know, you can use the AirPlay to kind of send it via your Apple TV. And it's like, that's kind of, you know, it it's not, a comfortable experience when you've sort of had to kind of use the device in your hand to then make it happen on the TV. And then you kind of have to like put down that device carefully and make sure that, you know, it doesn't interrupt <laughs> what's happening on the TV. Um, so it's kind of, it's, it's that extra step where you're like, oh, it would be easier if I could just do this direct. Look, clearly I'm just going to have to commit to buying a new TV and hopefully one with Android TV on it. Um, Let's talk COVID safe app. Yeah. Because obviously, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of, well, a lot of action around New South Wales and Victoria. Victoria in full lockdown at the moment. Uh, I believe that we are now over 30 COVID-19 infections from a single pub source in Sydney. But what we're hearing at the moment is that the COVID safe app has not actually been the sole source of any contact tracing. In fact, there's nothing, uh, every single contact trace they've done could have been done by the pen and paper results that have come through from people signing into the pubs than the COVID safe app by itself. Uh, New South Wales opposition have called it a $2 million failure. I'm curious, do we think it is actually a technology failure or do we think this is a marketing failure? Because we were told it was sunscreen. You know, if you were going to go out in the sun, you wore sunscreen. If you were going to go out, you had the COVID uh, safe app. It was going to protect you. But it was never about protecting you. It was about tracking down community tracing, contact tracing. It was about backtracking where you had been. And I think maybe the failure isn't actually the technology itself, which has been ropey at best, but it's about the way it was sold to us in an entirely different way to how it was actually going to be practically usable. Yeah. Look, um, here's my take. I feel like the the initial position was absolutely a marketing failure. Um, I mean, look, I get why they went out so strong with it in the first place. They wanted to get the install base high. They wanted to make sure that as many people as possible installed it. And I think, you know, a lot of writers and journalists gave it kind of the benefit of the doubt at the start in the name of sort of saying, there is potential here for this to be helpful. We kind of had to move fast. It's a big thing where I feel like the accusation that it was like, you know, a waste of two million bucks. I'm always like, okay, look, you can ask, you know, what was the right price? But I have no problem with in the midst of a pandemic just saying we have to try all the best available options. This absolutely felt like it was going to be really helpful in the mix of options. And so I think getting something out there fast was important. I think the failures at this stage for me are absolutely then that idea of the lack of the follow-through, you know, that that if they were going to pitch it so hard as they did to be this incredibly important tool that we all should be running, then they should have made sure in that kind of, you know, following few weeks, is it as effective as we want it to be? And if it's not, how do we make it more effective? And that includes then keeping people informed on best practice for the way they used it. It kind of mm. kept feeling like, you know, after that big first blitz, then it was, you know, yet another, oh, we've we've kind of had our talking point for the day and we've, you know, looks like we're doing the right thing. And now we'll just kind of sh stick that 
over on the side and we'll just move on to other things that feel more important. Um, yeah, I feel like it wasn't a waste of money, but now it becomes a waste because of this refusal to to keep making sure that it's going to be effective. You know, the idea I'm hearing from people that that the iPhone version actually screws up their like Bluetooth connections <sighs> with other devices. Um, like their watch keeps disconnecting from their phone while they're running it. Um, all those kinds of things that go, well, it's not practical. And if, if that just ends up meaning people have stopped running it, then this idea that somehow, oh, we have to stick with Australia's version of, of how we want it to run. So we get proper, you know, government access to the information instead of moving to the Google and Apple API version where it's far more kind of privacy centric in that kind of, you know, instance of not sharing the data through to government, but that it will send people automated alerts if somebody has been identified. In some ways, that automated version feels like it would be more helpful if something has slipped through the cracks where so far all we've seen is that the contact tracing has matched what was already found, it was more like after the fact they went, oh, and that person was running it, rather than this helped us to find somebody that we weren't able to get a hold of. Look, I don't want to dive into anecdata here, but, you know, we've got New South Wales Labor leader Jodie McKay saying that she's actually got a party colleague who had been at the Crossroads Hotel, the hotel at the centre of all of these COVID-19 outbreaks, yep. uh, or the, the most recent ones, and they have the app but haven't been contacted. Nine, uh, Nine News has done an interview with someone else who wanted to stay anonymous saying, I was there and I've not received any alerts. I don't know if this is working. I think that's part of the problem is we it was never entirely clear to us maybe what we should expect the app to do for us as an individual compared yeah. to what it was going to do in terms of data for government organisations. Yeah, that's such a good way of thinking about it. That, of course, it's like, well, you know, if you were sat at a table you know, across the other side of the room from the person who was identified as the source, then it's like the way that the app works wouldn't necessarily alert you because you didn't come within that Bluetooth range. Or it might be that you did, but that the Bluetooth wasn't working properly through that app in that moment because you're on an iPhone and you didn't have the app open on the home screen um, because that's the main way that the iPhone version actually works reliably is that you're meant to walk around like you've got a Geiger counter in your hand, <laughs> kind of showing it, you know, waving it around and making sure it actually is noticing things happening. It's like, it was just, you know, again, I do not mind where it started. Um, I hate where it's where it's landed. I hate where it's landed too. And I should just say that under the new New South Wales pub restrictions, what they are doing now is that not only do you have to sign in when you come through, but if that's on a pen and paper sign in rather than say via a QR code, the pubs then have to actually upload a digital record of all those sign-ins every 24 hours now. So contact tracing clearly on the forefront of at least New South Wales Health's mind. Yeah. And look, you know, New South Wales has made it clear they have no intentions of doing a lockdown like Victoria again. That feels kind of dangerous in this moment, but at the very least, that should mean really upping that game on how this contact tracing stuff works so that, you know, they can get their hands on exactly where people have been and what has happened as best they can. Because, yeah, that's the thing that scares me the most. Same. And look, look that's the way they're going to play it at the moment. So let's move on to something a lot more fun. Let's talk about the Global Esports Federation. Yeah. 
And look, by fun, I mean, let's talk about business machinations and the way in which they may or may not be helpful to a growing uh, industry of entertainment. <laughs> that is actually more fun than what we were talking about. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so, yeah, look, there was this wonderful announcement a few days ago that is kind of, you know, has confused many pundits in the esports space. And that's the idea that we have um, this new body that's called itself the Global Esports Federation. It is, uh, it's been formed in Singapore. It has the backing of Tencent, which is one of the very big mm. uh, Chinese entertainment companies. And there's interesting tensions here. I'll kind of come back to those shortly, but, um, it's been very much kind of set up as this entity that aims to, you know, represent the interests and the development of esports. They're saying they, they, they seek to establish the credibility, legitimacy and prestige for esports. And they claim to have all these kinds of partnerships with, I notice on a list, they have like 54 countries listed as having, uh, the global esports federation list of member federations. Huh. And you're like, so apparently there's 54 countries that have some kind of official enough federation for esports within the country that they have kind of created these agreements. Two of these countries include the United Kingdom and United States, where I'm like, really? They, I didn't realize they have these kinds of bodies that everybody in the industry is kind of go, yep, they're the people. They're the people who represent who we are and what we do. Um, but the latest is that they've signed a deal with the Squash Federation, the actual sport, not eSport. Uh, uh, and I even checked, there was, a, there was a Squash video game released in 2009. That's the last time I've seen <laughs> anything related to video games and Squash being mentioned in the same article. Um, but they have you know, formed a, a fancy new agreement that is all about uh, promoting, uh, there's a kind of a good, you know, um, the inclusion of the World Squash Federation as a member of the GEF presents new opportunities for the sport to evolve. Squash is already one of the most entertaining racket sports in the world, with players recognized for their athleticism and stamina. Uh, working with the right partners, including technologists and publishers within the esports community and the GEF, will allow our passionate squash community to strongly engage with esports and inspire a new generation of squash players and spectators. Uh, I'm just so confused as to what this organization actually thinks esports is and how this notion of creating agreements with traditional sports. They also have agreements with Taekwondo and the International Tennis Federation. I'm not even sure if that's the actual, you know, main tennis organization or what. But I'm just, I'm really confused, Nick. I'm hoping you can help me understand this better, even though I'm meant to understand esports. I'm not sure I can. <laughs> I'm absolutely mystified by this. I mean, look, you know, uh, this is just, are, are they trying to gain legitimacy? And if they were, what the hell's the Squash Federation got to do with that? Yeah. And look, you know, I, I heard a story earlier in the year where, and I think it was the Global Esports Federation, but the, look, there are other bodies that call themselves like the World Esports Organization or the this or the that. Oh, and yeah. a lot of it just always feels like there's this kind of rent-seeking play at work, you know, from someone trying to say we're the big body who's going to bring industries together to do it, you know, and then 
you know, all the corruption that has been attached to the likes of the IOC or FIFA over the years. You're like, we want to be that future corrupt body. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> like, because you think, well, even, you know, the IOC and FIFA, they started somewhere, right? Somebody had to at some point put their hand up and go, we're going to be this body that sort of brings it all together and, and tries to codify things and represent the interests of this stuff. So I get that there's a bit of a tension here at the moment and it's all being played out very publicly, but there is kind of nothing about it except to say that Tencent also owns, uh, you know, as a subsidiary, Riot Games is is owned by Tencent. Riot Games right. has some of the world's biggest, uh, you know, world's biggest uh, esports. And, of course, compared to traditional sports, the big issue with esports is that you're dealing with intellectual property of private companies you know you're not just kind of being able to you know get a ball and kick it around and call it soccer you have to have access to the video games owned by companies and for them to agree that you could hold a tournament using their software so in that sense that 10 cent deal actually does kind of give it a sense a certain legitimacy but at the same time every time i've seen these people pipe up on the internet whether it's like particularly in social media and on Twitter, they have slightly over a thousand followers um, that that most people just kind of scratch their heads, turn around and go, who, who are these people and what the hell do they think they're doing? I'm really confused by this. So I'm just quickly having a bit of a look at things like the International Esports Federation and, and trying to fall. You could fall into a wiki hole very, yeah. very quickly, which I imagine you it's have. It's people's Judean front. <laughs> Look, it's really quite mystifying and, and very excited to learn that in May 2013, uh, the uh, International Esports Federation was an official signatory to the World Anti-Doping Agency, uh, which is uh, just fantastic that that was thought about seven years yeah. ago, I guess. That I'm very confused. Um you mentioned before that, of course, you know, we have seen these organizations in, in more mainstream sports, um, get continually outed as being corrupt and, uh, bloated. And I'm thinking of the, uh, FIA when it comes to motor racing and you mentioned FIFA. Um, how do we, how do we streamline that? I mean, if we know that that's a quantity, what do we need to do with esports federations to make sure that we, we cut away that corruption before it even settles in? Yeah. Look, I mean, that is, that is a really big question. I feel like the biggest thing from my perspective that could be really valuable to esports is an entity that is all about representing the interests of players against the interests of all the kinds of, you know, the companies and things that are involved. You know, and I think there have been a number of player bodies that have formed around some major esports in the name of, you know, again, sort of making sure people don't get contractually screwed over mm. or that, you know, that there are minimum standards for like wages or living conditions or different things so that people don't abuse that desire of, you know, of young esports athletes to kind of get that chance to go pro. And it turns out they've signed some horrible contract that is, you know, screwing them over for five years, um, which is the entire lifespan of how they would probably have even been able to make a career. Um, so it's it's those kinds of things that actually try to stand up for, for the ethics that I think could be important in the long term. But I feel like, yeah, so many of these bodies so far, they just sort of feel like they want to, you know, often it's about creating the business opportunity to connect sponsors with, with uh, tournament opportunity. You know, and it's always that idea of just creating this sort of, you know, middle organization that wants to clip the ticket 
and to wear a lot of suits and pretend that they're able to connect with people in a way that you go, none of these people look like they've ever actually been part of an esports organization of any kind. And I feel like eventually there will be something where it might be, you know, some like retired, you know, player or retired management, you know, someone who moves from being well established in the industry um, to say, you know what, I want to get this right. And then for a lot of other people in the industry to stand behind them and say, we actually have faith that this person is setting this up for the right reasons. Um, well, right that's the thing. Now it's just so hard to interpret what people are doing it for. Well, exactly. I mean, what you're describing is more like a union or an association. And, yeah. and I think that's incredibly yeah. important. You want that protection for players. And, you know, there are some good associations for professional sports people. It'd be great to see eSport get on top of that uh, as quickly as yeah. possible, I think, because there is a very big risk of those people being poorly treated, disadvantaged, taken advantage of. I think that's, I think you're right. That's what esports needs right now. Yeah. And so, look, I figured it was good to come to this topic once at this stage because I feel like, you know, in 18 months, I feel like there'll be some other big story that we need to talk about with relation to the Global Esports Federation. I wanted to be able to put a flag in the ground and go, I don't know what these people are doing and let's keep an eye on them in the future. Yeah, look, it's really important. And, you know, we'll eat our own words if Naughty Dog come out with a AAA squash game very, very soon. Man, you remember when Rockstar released the table tennis game and it was great? <laughs> it yeah, was so good. It was really good. I'd be happy to eat my words in future if, you know, if this company turns out to really be doing this for the right reasons and bring some awesome stuff together. You know, good luck to them. Look, let's move on a little bit. We will keep an eye on that one. Uh, we're on a bit of a time budget today, but I am very, very late to this party. But what we do in The Shadows, the TV series, I've got to admit, I, I watched one episode, I wasn't entirely into it. I loved the film. I didn't know why it had to be moved to America. I didn't really see the point of it. I've just binged the whole season and everything that's available of season two right oh, now. Oh, nice. I'm so wrong. It's amazing. It's hilarious. It is a genuinely distinct bit of TV that keeps the same tone but adds entirely new things. It's incredibly clever. It's masterfully acted. The jokes in it have me absolutely jaw to the floor, sometimes laughing away or in shock at how clearly and cleverly <laughs> something's been turned around. I think the Vampire Council, anyone who's seen that one will know, it is hilarious. It is genuinely fourth wall meta comedy at its absolute finest amazing to see paul rubens reprising a role from the buffy the vampire slayer movie that's how deep oh, this wow. cut, that's how deep this cut goes okay paul that's right it is so funny i cannot recommend it highly enough and i'm sorry to everyone who i gave that kind of bit of a shrug and a bit of an eh to when they told me it was good <laughs> i'm wrong it's incredible I, I I watched the first two episodes. I haven't gotten back to it yet, but I did love the and I can't remember what kind of a vampire they call him, but he, the he, accountant sort of guy, the energy vampire, Colin Robinson, the energy vampire. I thought he was going so to be good. such a dull character. I mean, I thought deliberately the joke wasn't going to go far. He's become MVP by the end of first season. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> love it. <laughs> you got a hot tip All for right. me? I'll make sure and catch up on it myself as well. Dude. And then that way you have brought someone else to the table. So, you know, you've succeeded. <laughs> um, my tip for this week is the actual official Bureau of Meteorology weather app is okay. excellent. It has recently had a big update 
And look, I earlier in the year, I think I had a big kind of reckoning with, you know, there was the end of Pocket Weather, which was a fantastic app. And I was then searching through lots of different weather apps. Nothing felt like it was doing the job in just like a smooth, comfortable way that showed me all the details I wanted at a glance with like, but then a quick tap and it'll show you lots more info. Um, yeah, recent update to BOM is brilliant. Again, super, super simple, but it's just finally made me feel like I can uninstall all the other apps I've been dabbling with and just go, yep, great. This is the app that's just going to give me what I need when I need it. And I know that I can kind of trust what it's showing me because it's sourced from the BOM because so many other apps are like based uh... on you know, some US weather data system that is, you know, hours behind the latest information from the bureau here. So easy app recommendation. Get the latest version of, you know, you might already have it and you've been like, I don't update that one because it doesn't do anything good. Um, update it, use it. And life gets easier with, with your weather app. I am looking at it right now. I, I didn't have it installed. Um, you know, my day job involves me actually talking to the bureau every single day, reading the weather three, four, <laughs> five times in the morning as often as I can. Um, you're right. This is a fantastic app. And as someone who, who really spends a lot of time thinking about the weather, um, I'm glad I've got it. So thank you for the heads up on that one. Ray, you're welcome. Look, let's wrap it up. Uh, you can, of course, uh, find all the ByteSide things at ByteSide on Twitter, at the ByteSide on Instagram, and slash ByteSide on Facebook. I'm at Seamus on Twitter. Nick is at Dr. Nick. That's D-R underscore N-I-C on Twitter. Track me down. Say hi. And, of course, you can email us, ask at ByteSide.com. And I'm sure we'll be back again very soon. Until then, take care, everybody. Bye.